Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Chris T. Huen. I think I might be butchering your name, Professor. Apologies if that's the case. Dr. Huen is an associate professor of philosophy at Utah Valley University. His work specializes in social epistemology and what you might call the philosophy of games. He actually has a new book coming out entitled Games, Agency as Art, which I recommend that everyone go by and read. In this episode, however, we focus on the work that Dr. Huen has conducted in social epistemology. I won't try to summarize all the ground that we cover in the episode, but just to give you a sampling, a lot of the concepts from Dr. Huen's work, which we discuss, are broadly connected to the idea of an intellectual apocalypse, where the intellectual apocalypse is the idea that we're all living in some kind of post-truth era right now, right? This word is constantly thrown around, post-truth, or we're living in a world of alternative facts. And some of the more particular social epistemological concepts from Dr. Huen's work, which we discuss, which will be defined in the episode, include the problem of hyperspecialization and how that might affect intellectual autonomy, the problem of expert identification. How do I tell who's an expert in a field where I'm not an expert? Um, this distinction between filter bubbles and echo chambers. We talk about the nature of trust. And we end by talking about a co-authored paper that Dr. Huen has written entitled Moral Outrage Porn, which is extremely pertinent to the situation that we're all in online. Because I think social media is essentially a moral outrage frenzy, to put it lightly. So it was very interesting conversation, and I highly enjoyed it. So buckle your seatbelts, kids, as I give you Professor Chris Wen. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. start two of your papers by discussing this concept of the intellectual apocalypse, which I think derives from Elijah Milgram and his book, right. The Great Endarkenment. So I thought maybe we could start there. What is this concept of the intellectual apocalypse? That's not really a technical concept. And I, I mean, I wouldn't attribute that to Elijah because I think that's much sloppier. I just mean, I mean, vaguely like looking around at the world. I mean, I'm watching Fox News and reading Breitbart when I like when I do my research and looking at the um, the everything about the Trump Fox News alt right landscape. The I mean the thing that people are I don't like the term post truth, but whatever people are pointing at when they're using that term about the fact that a large number of people seem to have been disconnected from um, basic facts. It's whatever that is. Uh, mm. So I I don't like that. That's not a technical term. That's just the that's a way to slap a label on looking around the world and means like, oh, shit, why do people believe the things they're believing? Right. Yeah. And I think uh, at least in your paper expertise in the fragmentation of intellectual autonomy, you connect that term, the intellectual apocalypse, with this idea of hyper specialization in fields and how yeah. fields have gotten so hyper specialized right. that they've become mutually incomprehensible right. to one another. Right. So this is <clears throat> so the idea of hyperspecialization comes from Elijah Milgram uh, and his book, which is amazing, The Great Endarkenment. Um, 
helped to crystallize for me a number of things I was seeing that I didn't fully understand. Um, so before I read that book, I was really interested in something that you that I've been calling the expert identification problem. Uh, and in philosophy, it's kind of people kind of think of it as like this minor, tiny problem. And I kept thinking like this is bigger than I can like it's much bigger than people think it yeah. is. It's a serious major problem. Um, weirdly, the place I got to the expert identification problem was in aesthetics. There's this like simple puzzle that I've been thinking about for a really long time. And the puzzle is like, basically, if you don't get something, how do you tell a pretentious hipster from how do you tell a pretentious hipster from somebody that is genuinely deeply into something that you don't have enough skill to understand? So my own experience with this was actually jazz. Like I grew up on Louis Armstrong and like 20s jazz. And I used to think like the kind of like 60s, like bop era and then avant-garde stuff like that was pretentious that was like people who were just doing that to like you know show off how cool they were but no one could just listen to that noise right um right. and then you know i mean that's what i thought when i was like 18 and then i was like i was 19 like i sat and i listened to john coltrane who i hadn't gotten who i thought was like for pretentious hipsters and then like after like 15 listens, it like dawned on to me. And I was like, oh my God, this is completely amazing. I see now. And of course, like sometimes when you talk to people that aren't jazz, they're like, oh, the only reason you like jazz is because you're a pretentious fucking hipster, right? <laughs> so there's this problem of like, so here's this problem. You don't get jazz. You don't get wine or something. Like you don't like it. Um, mm. And there are people out there who claim, oh, I've been into it a really long time. You just need to, you, you need some time to get into it, man. Um, and there's this question of how, whether you can tell they're a legitimate expert in something you don't understand or whether they're making it up. Um, I think the problem is you can't trust all people that make such claims because they're, um, uh, you can't make uh, trust all people that make such claims because there are groups of people that have, created i think like false aesthetics and right there are fake gurus or whatever they're fake gurus so the problem was and it weirdly started for me aesthetics like how do you tell a fake guru from someone genuine or something that you don't have you're not in touch with so and then i started realizing um as i was reading some of this stuff the thing that got me to this cognitive islands paper was realizing yeah. that that problem was symmetrical between the aesthetic space and the moral space and there was something deeply different about those spaces. Uh, and the idea there was something like, look, there's this, with science at least, there's this litmus test we can tell. Like if I know nothing about bridge building and you engineers claim to be able to like, you know all the stuff that I understand, I have a test, like you can, I can make you build a bridge and see if it falls down. And then I'm, I'm, I'm still convinced that there's no such similar test in the aesthetic or the moral space. Right. So, so even if you're not an expert in bridge building, there's a tangible result that you can point to to say, OK, well, that person might be an expert because they just built a bridge and yeah. the bridge is there. Right. But you, you don't have that same kind of tangible thing that you can point to in the realm of morality right. or right. aesthetics. Yeah, I want to get deeper into this concept of a cognitive island. So you define it as cognitive islands are those cognitive domains in which successfully identifying and assessing experts in that domain requires that one already has expertise yeah. in that domain. So you need to be an expert in order to tell who the experts are. And right. you say that cognitive islands are both, they're subtle and they're isolated fields. So I thought right. perhaps you could 
cash out those concepts a bit further. Right. What does it mean for for a cognitive domain to be both subtle and isolated? Right. So, so the key idea for me is this idea called a litmus test. Wow, I think. I still think of it as a litmus test. I think in the paper it's not called a litmus test because some reviewer had very, very like nitpicky worries about that term. So it's not in that paper, but it's in every other place I've talked about this thing. So the bridge building is something like a litmus test, right? So, so if there's some, uh, if someone claims to be an expert in something, right. um, in some domains of expertise, there's an easy way for a novice to tell if the expert is actually an expert. So two examples are bridge building and axe throwing, right? Like axe, I mean, I often think of like rock climbing, like everyone loves, I'm a rock climber and everyone is like amazed by Annex Hanold's thing because oh, yeah. you don't like, you don't, you don't need to know anything about rock climbing to see him doing it and see that he is doing the thing, right? It makes like, me nervous just watching him. So I actually haven't, I mean, I know all about it. I haven't seen the movie Free Solo because I keep being presented it in airplanes and i'm like i can't watch it up here there, <laughs> there is a, i don't know if you've heard just quick there's a free soloist that died the other day i think yeah. in brazil or something which is kind of tragic but yeah anyway keep it's going. unsurprising sorry yeah no so axe throwing and bridge building like if you claim to be an expert axe thrower and i have no idea about axe throwing there's an easy result that anyone can tell is good so the measure of a good result is obvious to the non-expert uh, some realms, I think that's not true, right? So the aesthetic realm, and um, so the aesthetic realm and the moral realm. So the first idea is the idea that some realms are subtle. So subtlety means that there's no litmus test, basically, right? There's no easy output. Mm -hmm. This isn't enough because I think there's some realms. So there's another set of realms that are subtle, but I think we could still get some traction on. So think about um, super abstract theoretical physics or really are some really arcane cryptographic math right mm -hmm. those are subtle in my mind because like there's no output that's correct for those that i can easily tell but you we i can still get some kind of traction on them through an idea that philip kitcher calls indirect calibration so it looks something like this there's a realm that's obvious like bridge building mm -hmm. and i know that the bridge building engineers trust the material scientists. And I know that the material scientists trust the theoretical physicists. So I can trace that line of trust, right? Like the, the, um, the, so I can look at the obvious output and track backwards. Similarly, like with medicine, I think, look, I know that antibiotics works, so I can trust those people. And then I know that those people trust these like statistical methods. And even though I can't assess the statistical methods myself, I know that they are, bound up with um, with other domains that have some kind of obvious output. So, right. so it's subtle, but it's still linked to other right. domains. So right. even if you're not an expert, maybe there's a way in which right. you can still assess. Right. So the things that I called cognitive islands don't have either of those attributes. Yeah. So, right, um, axe throwing and bridge building are obvious. Statistics and theoretical physics are subtle, but they're linked to an obvious field, so I can indirectly assess them. Um, and then some fields I think don't have either, and those are the cognitive islands. That's morality for me, and that's aesthetics. Those are the realms that there's no link, they're not obvious, and there's no linkage up to an obvious field. Uh, so from those realms, it seems like, I mean, in order to assess moral, a morally good judgment, you need to have some moral skill yourself. Um, 
and there's no there's no there's no indirect shortcut in. So you're in saying that you're assuming aesthetic and moral realism, right? Because as you know, there are some people who think that entire yeah. fields are fraudulent. Like there is no such yeah. thing as an expert wine taster. And if you're right. Right, right. realist about morality, presumably you'd say the same yeah. thing, right? Yeah. No, this is so this is only interesting in this presentation. This is only interesting if you're a realist about any of these, which I am. But yeah. Um, I think the, you you noted that like there are some fields like finance that aren't quite cognitive islands, but are right. might be cognitive swamps. I, think, yeah. I, I, love, I love the way you name things. I think you have a good knack for naming. Philosophical <laughs> Thank concepts. you. We said, what better explanation for the mortgage bubble mortgage bubble crash than the than that the domain of high end finance is very hard to check by an outsider? Um, I thought that was a good explanation. Yeah. But the, so then you go on in the paper to argue that there's like a radically pessimistic view that you can take with respect to cognitive violence and a moderately right. pessimistic view where the radically pessimistic view says that, well, essentially expert testimony is useless if you're on a cognitive violence, right. but you argue for that, for a more moderate position. So what's that a uh, moderate position? <laughs> you, you know, this is much more vivid in your head than mine. Like I didn't, <laughs> you just read this. I wrote this like six years ago. <laughs> Wait, what? You you should remind me what I think because I'm not sure. I, so you I, say, I, yeah, I got. <laughs> so you say, uh, I will argue that this most radical form of pessimism, and show that, um, I will argue against this most radical form of pessimism and show that there are legitimate uses of experts even on cognitive violence, namely all those cases where experts oh, need right, 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 of right, other right, experts. Okay. okay, I remember this now. Sorry. Yeah. I've, one problem is I've become more pessimistic since I wrote that paper about some <laughs> of this stuff. Um, so, so, uh, so I was worried there about some views that said, look, there's no use for aesthetic experts and no use for moral experts at all. So there's a view, um, there's a view that some people hold that looks like this. Uh, either you're an expert and you don't need other experts or you're not an expert, so you can't find any other expert, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there's no situation in which you would ever need expertise. This strikes me as a radical oversimplification. That's the ra that's the radical pessimism view. And so I think the moderate view is something like um, sometimes you're an expert and you need other expert help only because expertise isn't total. Like expertise is always partial. Like I need here's some uh, here's some Here's some cases in which an expert needs uh, might need another uh, an expert on a cognitive island might need help from another expert. Um, right. One, there's just another part of the field that they haven't had the time to investigate. Two, and I think this is really common. Uh, we use uh, experts use other experts to corroborate and check their own reasoning, um, stuff like that. So I don't think that's super philosophically interesting. I just think that there's a radical pessimism. Uh, based on this oversimplification, and the oversimplification is, if you're an expert, you have to be a. Your expertise is total. You have all the knowledge. You're not flawed in any way. And I thought, if you're an expert and in any way admit the fallibility of your expertise or the limitation of your expertise, then even on a cognitive island, you have uses for other experts, right? Because, yeah. yeah. And then also, as you know, legitimate experts will disagree with one another right. within a field. Yeah. So so you go on to say that uh, cognitive islands are are what you call runaway personal echo chambers. You say, yeah. quote, cognitive violence do exact a heavy epistemic price. The cognitive isolation of such domains leave a, leaves us dramatically vulnerable to an epistemic trap, which I will call a runaway personal echo chamber. In such, a, in such an echo chamber, 
One's own flawed experience will lead one to trust bad experts, which, which will reinforce one's mistaken beliefs and sensibilities. Could you just say a little more about what yeah. you mean by runaway personal echo chamber? So let me, I have to track my mind back because I wrote that before I discovered the really good sociology and echo chambers from Jameson Capella that led to my later article on epistemic bubbles and echo chambers. So yeah. I think in this article, I'm working with a slightly more primitive notion of echo chamber, but it's okay. pretty simple. I think it's that uh, the idea here is just that if you need your, to use your own expertise to identify another expert, then if there are deep flaws in your purported expertise, they'll lead you to pick the wrong experts. I mean, the idea is just that if you're if you're a white supremacist, your moral vision is such that when you pick other experts to corroborate you or to extend and fill in parts of your view, you're going to pick other white supremacists. And since there's no, um, I mean, we don't have that problem off of cognitive islands because uh, because of the litmus test, right? So if you have um, so if you have a radically flawed engineering theory, then you're going to build crap and it's going to fall down and you're going to be able to tell. But since there's no litmus test check uh, in the moral and aesthetic spaces, then um, then bad expertise will lead to picking. So if your expertise is bad, it'll lead you to pick other bad experts to trust uh, and they'll just bootstrap you. Right. Right. And then you'll just be led further astray because yep. they're not actually experts, right. even though you think right. they are. I mean, this is this is I mean, I, I'm, this is this is I think just a fairly abstract model of something really simple, which is like how white supremacist moral like corroboration works, right? You, right. If you're a white supremacist, um, you'll distrust all the non-white supremacists, right? Um, and then uh, pick other white supremacists as your trusted moral advisors, compatriots and collaborators and then they'll just push you further down the line so it's a fairly pessimistic view mm -hmm. well an another interesting thing that you say about the echo chambers that you can become ensconced in when on a cognitive island is that a lot of times you can become trapped in that echo chamber without any epistemic vices right like you yeah. say like the fox news epistemic bubble or echo chamber it's it comes into existence via epistemic vices via intellectual laziness via malicious action but you can have just completely good intentions and in actually wanting to find an expert and still become trapped in an echo chamber due to no fault of your own which yeah. i thought was a interesting distinction yeah that's i mean this is i think that view that view gets much stronger in the later paper uh partially because in the later paper um in the echo chambers paper. So in the early paper, I have a strong division between the empirical stuff and the moral and aesthetic stuff. Uh, right. And I hadn't really digested Elijah Milgram's book on hyper-specialization, which we should get back to about now because we wandered yeah, away yeah. from that. So I thought in the early paper that we really wouldn't get as many echo chambers around the empirical stuff. Um, but I think that's because I had an overly optimistic view of how easy it was to assess the empirical stuff. I believe too much in this indirect calibration. So Elijah Milgram's book really convinced me that I was too optimistic. So Elijah Milgram's book is about how hard it is for us to actually assess even empirical experts, right? And his view is that um, the specializations are specializations, specializations in sciences are so strong that no one's actually in a position to assess all of a scientific argument. So the idea is something like, look, um, 
look at the uh, the argument that says build this nuclear power station using these materials. In order to actually come out with those materials, you need to apply material science, chemistry, physics, theoretical physics, nuclear physics, various forms of statistics, various complex forms of calculus. And no human being is actually capable of handling one or even, I mean, at most two, but probably if you actually, I mean, think about philosophy, right? It's not like there's anyone that's a master of philosophy, right? We're all like, I, it's not, it's not even like, you know, I'm not a philosopher. I don't know all of philosophy. I'm supposed to know epistemology. I don't even know a tenth of epistemology. I work in social epistemology. I don't even know all of social epistemology. I work in like three debates out of a hundred, right? So it's I can't even, how much there is. <laughs> yeah. And like, ask me to assess something from philosophy of language. I don't know. Right. Those are, that's like, so that's how it is. I think like each scientific discipline is as subdivided, right? It's not like, so my wife is a chemist. It's not like she knows all of chemistry, right? In fact, she has her tiny patch of chemistry that she understands, which is like one, one millionth of chemistry. And she understands a little bit of a few surrounding patches, but for the rest, she just has to trust other chemistry results that she doesn't have the time or the expertise to follow so the view is and then string that across multiple fields right so right. string that when you have an argument that crosses hundreds of sub-disciplines across like eight or nine major disciplines nobody can actually bring into their mind and has the expertise to track more than like you know a thousandth of the amount of information required to output, like actually building a nuclear power plant. And here's what's terrifying. Um, I think actually assessing the climate change data requires an enormous amount of expertise. It requires statistical understanding, understanding of software packages, understanding of geology, how to read core samples, and no person has all this stuff. So- That is horrifying. Um, <laughs> it's, it's horrifying, right? So the, the idea is something like, look, if you actually analyze why I believe in climate change, right, or why I believe in dark matter, yeah. I, philosopher, I couldn't even begin to articulate um, these arguments. And I can't even begin to articulate why I trust the places I trust. Because it's not like, so there's this, in the Cognitive Islands paper, I really was convinced by Kitcher that you could do this indirect calibration and track the lines of trust down like through the fields but i can't actually even i myself can't assess the lines of trust because i can't read i can't even read the papers like in order to read this up i'd have to re read the stat statistics papers and read the cs papers that show the lines of trust but i don't even understand that right does that make it's sense part of, yeah yeah it's part of it not just the hyper specialization of knowledge but just the overwhelming amount of knowledge like yeah. even even if they the if these fields weren't hyper specialized there's just not enough time in the day right. to really read everything that you need to read right. in order to come to an understanding of all these fields so for Elijah milgram hyper specialization falls right out of or the overwhelming amount of knowledge i mean the vision of that book is i think he says like the idea of intellectual autonomy gives rise to the enlightenment, which creates so much knowledge that it makes intellectual autonomy impossible, right? The reason we have to hyper-specialize is because there's literally a, more than a million times as much knowledge as one human brain can hold. By the way, any, I think anyone interested in this uh, 
should read a really interesting book from William Wimsett called Reengineering Philosophy for Limited Beings that mm. thinks that um, no, it's, sorry, uh, that that thinks that science understands this, that philosophy still pretends like that there's enough intellectual autonomy that we could actually understand something in one head, but that's impossible. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, that's a sideline. So if you if you once you get once you get the hyper specialization view firmly enough in your head, yeah. then then you start to think, holy shit, like the reason I believe all this stuff is trust, right? right. And it's trust that I manage pretty poorly. So lately I've been use this, using this language. It's like, it's not just that I have to choose who to trust. I have to trust other people about who to trust, right? Like trust is iterated. Like I don't choose the particular scientist. It's that I'm trusting whole institutions that are picking the scientists, right? So I'm, so when I trust, if I trust like some scientific result, I trust it because it was published in nature, which means I trusted the peer review system behind nature, which itself involves trusting the institutions that have like, right? So nature, tr nature has sent an article out for review to someone and they believe in that person because that person has been vetted by some other institution. But again, like nature's editors aren't specialists in every field, right? They have to trust those. So, right, so, 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 I mean, you start to see this picture, right? Where like, I have to trust far beyond my management. So if you believe that, then the earlier view I had in the Cognitive Islands paper, which is really narrow, it's like, oh, this problem is just about morality and aesthetics. That blows up everywhere, right? Um, you become more radically pessimistic in a way. You become much more radically pessimistic because the problem of expert identification isn't just limited. So the thing that can find that problem, so I'm, this, this is helpful because I didn't fully see this because I haven't gone back to look at that paper in a long time. The thing that made me more optimistic about the empirical sciences was yeah. this belief in indirect calibration, that you could properly trust, trust, trace trust down the line. If you start to think that's a fantasy, then you start to think that the problem of echo chambers can show up everywhere, right? Not just in morality and aesthetics. And that's where I end up, that's where I end up in the epistemic bubbles and echo chambers paper after I've read the Elijah Milgram book and been convinced by like the dramatically, a dramatically pessimistic view about our capacity to track who we're trusting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Once, so I want to, well, see, recently I just kind of like realized just how the overwhelming majority of knowledge that I have is testimonial knowledge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it immediately made me so much more humble and it makes right. me just so much more suspicious of people who, have this this confidence about all these things around me, and I say that with like no false humility. It's just yeah, astonishing yeah. to me. I want so no, maybe yes. I want to get to how the hyper specialization affects intellectual autonomy and your views right. on that and the different kinds of intellectual autonomy. But maybe uh, since you mentioned the most recent paper where you distinguish echo chambers from epistemic bubbles, we could just get into some of that stuff. So I think this is a paper coming out in Episteme. That's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Um. So it's called Echo Chambers, Epistemic Bubbles. I really, this is actually the first paper that I read of yours that got me onto your work. Yep. So what is, so I guess first, you make this distinction, really interesting distinction in my mind between echo chambers and this kind of new way that you understand them yep. and epistemic bubbles. What, what is that distinction? It's actually an old distinction. This is the, I was just telling someone last night that, I mean, I think that paper doesn't do any original work. It just revives work that's like been forgotten. So here, so and th this will lead us to the, back to the question we were talking about before, which is, um, is this a situation of epistemic vice or not? Um, right. So, 
So there are these two concepts that are like floating around, uh, filter bubbles and echo chambers. Filter bubbles is the popular term for it. Um, so people treat them as synonymous. Uh, and they, the basic idea is something like, look, all your friends on Facebook are like you. They only will show you arguments and evidence on your side. You won't hear or see arguments or evidence from the other side. So you're epistemically screwed. Um, I started thinking about this because there's people started showing people started thinking there are a bunch of articles that got published that were like, oh, the problem of echo chambers and filter bubbles has been radically overestimated. Uh, if you look at the data, like people on the far right click through and look at CNN articles and MSNBC articles and people on the far left are all the time clicking through and looking at like Breitbart and like Fox News. Like people on the left know what Fox News is saying and people on the right know. So, so there's some problem. They haven't been exposed to the, the other side. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about this and I was like, that doesn't seem quite right. And then I found, oh my God, it was in Jonathan Robson's paper on, uh, on this stuff. And he had a footnote to the book, to Jameson Capella's book, Echo Chambers. So these are sociologist journalists writing in the, I mean, they were researching in the 90s and the early aughts. And I think this book, uh, Echo Chamber, which is an analysis of Rush Limbaugh, really inter like really pushes this term into the public consciousness. But if you go back and look at that book, it's about something completely different. So their notion of echo chamber is basically an echo chamber or something where people on the inside have been brought to systematically distrust people on the outside. Right. So they're really interested in the way in which Rush Limbaugh had brought his listeners to systematically think that outsiders were malicious and corrupt and were lying about everything. And I was like, these are two totally different concepts. Like, so the filter bubble concept, the epistemic bubble concept is well-defined. That's, you don't hear people on the outside. Mm -hmm. And the echo chamber concept is well-defined. It's, you don't trust people on the outside. And then somehow those have gotten merged in people's mind. And right. the, the trust idea has like disappeared. Uh, so if you look in modern sociology, if you look in political theory, if you look at Cass Sunstein stuff, if you look at all new media scholarship, they're all working with this bubble concept of not hearing people um, and not being exposed to the evidence at all or not hearing the arguments. If you actually just look online, you don't need data. It's obviously false, right? All the Fox News people can recite all the MSNBC talking points. All the MSNBC talking people know exactly, like climate change deniers haven't heard climate change. It's not that they haven't heard climate change arguments. They know all of them. Uh, they just think that in all these cases, they think that the other side is systematically corrupted, right? Fox News listeners think that liberals are part of an elite conspiracy Right. Um, climate change deniers typically think something like, oh, the science has been corrupted by economic interests and that they're all lying to you. So it seems like so the point of that paper was just to point out this distinction that had been there in the literature that people had just forgotten and point out that the forgotten side of it seemed to be the most. I mean, that seemed to be the most important explanation of what was going on. It's yeah, just obvious. It's such an important distinction because I like I have one just to take the filter bubble part. I have one friend who I think was in a filter bubble and it was just that they hadn't been exposed to the yeah. other side of the ideological coin for whatever reason. Maybe they're just yeah. adding friends who share their ideological yeah. views. So that's all they're seeing. Maybe it's the algorithmic filtering, like you say, yeah. where the yeah. algorithms discern your patterns of online behavior, then just yeah. feed you back the content that align with your ideological views. But I started introducing them to other 
ideological content and they were really open to it yeah, yeah. which is completely distinct from someone inside yeah. this echo chamber who's under the sway of what you call yeah. the disagreement enforcement mechanism or reinforcement yeah. mechanism yeah. so if i could just read i think this is a really uh salient passage which kind of makes the point this so this is from your paper you say um and kind of describing what an echo chamber is quote suppose i am a cult leader and I have taught my followers to believe that every human except the members of our group has been infested and mind-controlled by alien ghosts from Mars. I also teach my followers that these alien ghosts from Mars hate our group for knowing the truth, and so will constantly seek to undermine our knowledge of their existence through mechanisms like calling us a cult and calling us lunatics. So them being exposed to evidence from the other side or a different point of view just serves to reinforce them right. or entrench them further in their in their echo chamber. Right. Um so, I mean, that's one that's one reason the distinction matters. You note some other reasons why the distinction matters as well. I think like it's it's harder to ex escape an echo chamber. Yeah. Is that yeah. So, yeah, if it's just an epistemic bubble, epistemic bubbles should just fall immediately with exposure to the evidence if it's a mere omission of evidence, right? Or right. if the problem is you haven't heard the argument, then the first time you hear the argument, you'd be like, oh, that's a good argument, right? <laughs> uh, that's nice. Um, so, and I think there are epistemic bubbles. Like one interesting thing I teach in a very conservative area. And sometimes when I just present, I do a Nozick versus Rawls unit mm -hmm. and I just present the basic Rousseauian, what I think it was the basic Rousseauian Rawlsian argument, uh, uh, argument for um, social welfare. A lot of the students are just, oh, I had no idea there was an argument there. I just thought it was people who was evil. And they're like, oh, that's a decent <laughs> argument. So in that case, I think, in some cases, you do have bubbles, but if out, if trust in the outside world has been systematically undermined, then it's going to be really hard to get people to even listen. I mean, the stuff right. I've been thinking lately uh, about a lot of it has been about like what it is to have a posture of closed mindedness, because it's like if you distrust someone, it's like you won't even spend the energy to listen to even investigate their arguments, right? You will have, yeah. your mind is closed to it ahead of time. I mean, I think of this, I do have this, like when um, I used to in LA live by the Scientology mother church and occasionally Scientologists would try to convert me. And it's not like I would seriously consider their arguments, right? You were like, close-minded to them. Yeah, I was close-minded. And I think it's important to be close-minded too. We don't, we don't have the cognitive resources to expend on yeah. everything. We have to be close-minded to a bunch of stuff. Like, right. um, I don't, I mean, for philosophers, like, I don't like, you know, when an undergraduate who has never taken a philosophy course wants to evangelize Ayn Rand to me, again, I don't like carefully assess the arguments, right? I like, <laughs> although that one may be, that's a bad case because I did carefully assess those arguments when I was 18. I don't. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, so, so it seems like echo chambers are much more pernicious. This in, this idea you're talking about, about the reinforcement, I, got, I actually got that from Andre Begbie. Uh, it's a paper that is now, um, it's now actually forthcoming. Uh, it's a great paper. It's called Evidential Preemption. Um, and it, that, this is his idea, that if Rush Limbaugh predicts that other people are going to say that he's corrupt in a particular way and his followers believe that prediction, then when outsiders say Rush Limbaugh is corrupt in this particular way, then Rush Limbaugh's they're like, he was uh, right. Yeah, his prediction is confirmed. <laughs> so it's, I mean, I've been calling it like intellectual judo. It is, it's like a deadly trap. And yeah. I think it's why, this is why you find conspiracy theories in so many 
echo chambers because the conspiracy theories don't just ward off incoming evidence. They like judo incoming evidence by predicting it and making the theory like making the theory seem more right when right. various disconfirmations that were expected come in. Yeah. So I want to pick up on the thread of the closed mindedness piece. So uh, Heather Badley, she's a professor here at yep. UConn. So she wrote, I took a seminar called Epistemic Vices with her last semester. She has a paper called, is, can closed mindedness be an epistemic virtue, right? Usually yes. closed mindedness is a vice, but maybe in some environments, which she calls epistemically hostile environments, yep. it could be a virtue. So she defines an epistemically hostile environment as, quote, one that's utterly saturated with intellectual options that are false, unreliable, or aimed at misdirections. He says that, yeah, it can be an epistemic virtue potentially in these environments, or at the very least, it can minimize bad epistemic effects. Right. And in the paper that I wrote for her seminar, I connected your paper on right. epistemic bubbles and echo chambers with that. And I said, well, maybe I, I think what you're saying is right if the epistemically hostile environment in question is an echo chamber, but not necessarily if it's an epistemic bubble, because you know, like one of the things she says is, well, engaging with other agents in a hostile environment is unlikely to change their minds. Well, if it's an echo chamber, but if it's an epistemic bubble, then maybe talking to them won't be. Or she says, um, engaging with other agents in a hostile environment might make the knowledge possession aid agent to, it might make it more likely for the knowledge possessing agent to get the vice of intellectual servility yep. because you're going to like lose confidence in your beliefs because everyone around you is telling you that you're wrong. Yeah. But again, that seems like it might only be true if we're talking about an echo chamber where right. people are under the sway of this disagreement reinforcement mechanism. So I just right. thought, uh, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to mention that. I yeah. thought your paper was relevant to the yeah. kind of argument that she's making there. Uh, there's actually a really interesting other tension between those two papers. So I love this paper from Heather, but we we also have a very particular beef because I'm more <laughs> pessimistic with her about something. Uh -huh. So she thinks that I'm going to be careful not to misrepresent her here, but um, so she thinks that closed-mindedness is a virtue in only in epistemically hostile environments, so we don't have to worry about it in other situations. And epistemically hostile environments are rare. Right. I'm really worried that it's true that closed-mindedness is a virtue in epistemically hostile environments, and echo chambers typically represent their environment as epistemically hostile. So the out, Heather, Heather has an out for closed-mindedness, which I think is right, right? Closed-mindedness is sometimes excused. My mm -hmm. worry is that almost all echo chambers strategically take advantage of that out to make their position more reasonable. So the background question here is, oh, okay. is it reasonable to, could it possibly be reasonable to be in, in an echo chamber? So the yeah. worry that I have at the end of the echo chambers paper is that um, uh, the worry I have at the end of the echo chambers paper is that um, uh, sorry my there's a there's a newborn diaper change happening over here and I'm slightly distracted <laughs> um, um, the worry I have at the end of the paper is look there is a vice free way to get into an echo chamber right I think one in the beginning of our life we have to trust the people around us there's no way out of that like we because so much of our knowledge is testimonial um we need we need our trust settings to be positive like i mean i'm basically influenced here by like tyler burge and this kind of like epistemic warrant theory that says like the right default position towards testimony 
is acceptance until you get some defeating conditions that come on later on. Mm. So, so if that's right, and an echo chamber is particularly well uh, set up enough, then if you are born into an echo chamber, then you can follow entirely reasonable procedures and end up believing all kinds of nutty stuff. Like, yeah. so, I mean, I think, I think the real reason I believe, like I started believing in the particular network of institutions I do is that's how I was brought up believing. Um, and, uh, the, and if someone is brought up in the Fox news echo chamber, right, mm -hmm. then they get their trust settings rigged up in a certain way. Um, and if they start by trusting the people around them, and if their parents are Fox News listeners, and then the first thing they trust is Fox News, and that's don't trust anything else outside, then it seems like there's a vice-free way of following testimony, trust and testimony, and ending up just firmly enmeshed in this echo chamber. The reason that I'm really worried, um, the reason that I'm really worried about uh, Heather's stuff on virtue and open-mindedness, I mean being worried about the implications of that for the world is. So yeah. there's this further question about like, whether there's an out, can I step back and be like, oh, okay, let's do a reset. Let's figure out whether I'm actually in an echo chamber or not. One thing you might think is you don't want to become open-minded in certain hyper-hostile environments. So for example, I think if you're a resistance fighter in Nazi Germany and you're like surrounded by evil propaganda, don't, it would be like terrible to suddenly like reconsider and be open-minded and let all this stuff in, right? <laughs> maybe similarly, they, maybe they're on to something. <laughs> yeah, maybe similarly, like if you're, if you're like, I mean, I think it's, so there's a lot of interesting stuff that comes from like feminism and critical race theory that says, if you're an oppressed minority yeah. in a world that's full of like false propaganda against you, don't open yourself up to that. You have to, because it's so pernicious and so catchy that if you let that stuff into your head, you're going to be trapped. Like, it's so hard to hang on to the truth. Maybe you will develop the vice of intellectual stability yeah. but into your head. Yeah, exactly. So if the principle, if this leads to the principle that if you're an oppressed minority in an epistemically hostile environment, you shouldn't be open-minded. Right. The problem is echo chambers always represent themselves as that way. Like if you read Breitbart and if you read Rush Limbaugh and if you read Alex Jones, their view is that there's no one as oppressed as their listeners, right? Who is the most oppressed person in the world? It's the straight white Christian male on the right. Like and they're the people that the whole – like the, the world of like liberal feminists are have taken over the rest of the world and are filling it with propaganda, right? So does that make sense? So the worry yeah. is that there is a legitimate out that Heather's well described, which is it's okay to be closed-minded when you're in an epistemically hostile environment. And echo chambers represent the world that way. So if you grew up in an echo chamber, then you have a reason, a reasonable reason, to be closed-minded. So a Ku Klux Klan member could read Professor Baddeley's paper and say, like, look. We have a yeah. philosopher saying it's okay to be closed-minded when you're in an epistemically hostile environment. We are. They mistakenly believe that right. they are the ones in an epistemically right, hostile right, environment. Right. So then they're going to feel justified in their closed-mindedness. Right. Yes. So, I mean, and this is, it's so, it's also like, so I've been checking a lot of this stuff kind of empirically, like uh, just casually. I'm not an empirical scientist. But it looks to me that every single echo chamber I see out there involves a, Almost all of them involve a conspiracy theory, and almost all of them involve the view that they, the members in an oppressed minority in an epistemically hostile environment. It's very functional. Yeah, and I see the worry. I see the worry. So how, like, see, 
you say that in order to like escape an echo chamber like this, you, it might just require like a radical rebooting right. of one's belief systems. How how does that work? Like probably? I don't know, man. So here's a, it's a theoretical here's a theoretical possibility, right? Yeah. So the problem of echo chambers, if echo chambers have this grip, the problem is, um, the problem is. So what's the rational? When we step back, what's the rational problem of echo chamber beliefs? I think. Thomas Kelly has described this problem pretty well. Um, so, Ke- so Kelly's view is that um, you should be responsive to all the evidence and not overweight any evidence, for example, for having gotten it, ha- having heard that evidence first, right? You need to treat all evidence as having equal weight, no matter whether it came in first or second or third. Um, the echo chamber view obviously overweights. Uh, if you're inside an echo chamber you're, and you're sustaining inside it, you're obviously overweighting your early information. You're letting the early trust settings continually like bat out new and new evidence. So the way out, and this is a theoretical way out, would be at some point to um, try to undo the temporal, your overemphasis on temporal priority of information. And what that would look like would be to Throw away your beliefs and start all over again, trusting everyone and not just the people that you grew up with. So this to me, I mean, this is obviously like super cute to me because this looks like a version of Descartes, right? Descartes says, you know. Yeah, that's what um, I was thinking. Yeah, I mean, this is, I, I, I say this in the paper, something like, look, Descartes has this like, basically, I mean, it's really funny because if you, if you have the goggles on with the interest I have and you read Descartes' first meditation, it just looks like he's talking about an echo chamber. He's like, look, I was raised this way. My beliefs are infested with falsehood. <laughs> I don't know. Like, maybe it's all like, I mean. I'm right? taking a Descartes seminar actually right now. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, so Descartes said, okay, throw away everything and start over trusting only in myself and i think that can't be right but maybe we can do a new version of that which is throw everything and start over trusting everyone equally rather than just st- trusting the small community you grew up with uh-huh. that should undo temporal priority so, so it's almost that, like the opposite of descartes in a way because he's like i'm not you know all these right. beliefs i'm going to throw away i'm not going to trust anything and you're like no right. just trust everything for and right. see where that gets right you. i mean it this is really i mean again this is super influenced by so tyler burge's paper uh, content preservation probably like made me into the epistemology person I am. And the view is that the, I mean, the basic view for me that I extract from a lot of that stuff and a lot of like Jim Pryor stuff on dogmatism and warrant is basically the view start by trusting nobody and then figure out who to trust can't work. The only view that can work is first start by trusting loosely and generously start by trusting all your faculties and everybody else and their faculties and then winnow down from there. So this is an attempt to like, to undo echo chambers by like believing in that principle by saying the problem with you if you're in an echo chamber is you've started just by trusting one like the little community you grew up in and then you let that cut out everything else so stop right. that throw it all away um and start over and trust everyone so that's a theoretical possibility in order to motivate people to do that the problem is i think in order to, we, we're not going to cognitive reboot so i call this the social cognitive reboot um, I Another I term that I like. <laughs> um, it's very important to have good terms, I think. Anyway, so um, so uh, if you – the problem is 
obviously we're not going to reboot all the time like mm-hmm. that that's impossible for cognitively limited beings we're only going to reboot if we have a good reason to think we've been deceived right so there's the problem and i think that's the nugget of the issue an echo chamber member that has consistent worldview um doesn't have a good reason to think they've been consistently deceived right so yeah. And this is this is actually where I'm stuck. The, one of the papers I'm writing right now, just called "The Seductions of Clarity," is about what it's like to be in a worldview that's been engineered to be consistent and make sense. I think echo chambers like that. I also think, uh, in the paper I also talk about, I think like institutional bureaucracies, like university bureaucracies, also have an engineered worldview that's like super con- internally consistent. But if you have such a view, it's going to be really hard to be motivated to do the reboot because things make sense. You ha- think you have it explained, right? Right. Like, you know, anyway, yeah. And maybe the rebooting, maybe like in order to motivate that reboot, it's just a matter of making an emotional appeal or something at that point, as opposed to trying to rationally break into their worldview. Like I found, you know, I mean, it's not a novel point, right. but I found like a lot of the people that I disagree with, it's establishing that emotional connection and then their yeah. minds start to open up. They're like, hey, this this guy's OK. Like Maybe he's not completely evil or whatnot. Yeah. Um, this is yeah. this is the the possibly sunny ending to the echo chambers paper, which I still don't know if I fully believe in. But it's something like the way out for me. It's not just emotional. It's that the way the way out is. If the problem is distrust, then what you need to repair it is not information, but to restore trust. And often the way of restoring trust is through like unified relationships. I mean, I often think that like the few times I've been able to get through to someone that I think is in an echo chamber, it's that we first establish trust in some other terrain. We establish trust by rock climbing together. We establish trust by cooking together, right? right? And then once there's trust, and a lot of this depends on this so the trust literature is super interesting, by the way. There's this question that really deep in the trust literature that I think is key to this, which is, is trust unified around people or is it disunified around domains? So if trust is domain specific, the fact that someone thinks I'm a trustworthy rock climbing partner will mean nothing about whether I'm trustworthy about climate change denial. But if trust, so most of the modern views say that trust is radically disunified around domains. The old view, Annette Byers' view, is that to trust is to think someone has a good will in a general sense. Oh, if that's true, if that's true, then there might be a way out. And that way out involves establishing trust in one domain and using the unity of trust and character to move to another domain. Right. They're like, this guy, this person is a trustworthy person, not just right. a trustworthy rock right. climber. So right, exactly. Where I can believe him in a different cognitive right. domain as well. So if you want to know where I'm at right now, I'm currently... Um, way over in the trust literature trying to figure out this question about whether trust is unified or not because I think it's crucial to this out. And I, I don't yeah. know. The arguments. It would be nice. The things that make me think it's unified are that sometimes this like trust methodology actually works. But the arguments against the unity of trust are really good. And I mean, the arguments are basically like, I trust my accountant to do my account. I don't trust him for anything else. I just I don't trust the musical taste. I don't trust, you know, them to cook. I don't trust them to hang out. I just trust them to do my account. So and Thanksgiving just happened. And maybe that's kind of an argument against the unity of trust view. Because <laughs> yeah. you, have, you have family members that trust right. each other, presumably in some domains, but then they'll just get into severe political arguments and disagreements. That's a fantastic example. If trust were unified, then the fact that 
my family members trust me to drive and take babysit their children should mean that they trust me about, you know, information right. about climate change. But we know what that's like. That doesn't work at all. <laughs> so, so I want to. Sorry, I mean, go ahead. Here's a weird way to put it. I mean, this is this is very pessimistic, but you know, I I live in a red state. I'm surrounded by Trump people. Here's yeah. a case in which I I literally trust most all every one of them with my lives. Every the moment I drive on the highway, right? Yeah. So yeah. I think that my trust towards a lot of the people around me is literally with my life about driving, and yeah. not at all about information about science. So. If that's true, then there's then that solution doesn't work, and we're screwed. <laughs> well, on that positive note, I, I'd like to, uh, if we could, just like circle back to the intellectual autonomy stuff, uh, real quick. So yeah, looping back to the hyper specialization thing. Yeah. Um, in your paper, expertise in the fragmentation of intellectual autonomy, you say, so, yeah, as we talked about, this problem seems to present a real issue for intellectual autonomy, right. where intellectual autonomy is traditionally understood as self-reliance or self-protection right. or something like that and it's hard to be self-reliant if these yep. fields are hyper specialized and you can't really gain knowledge of these different fields right. in your paper you argue that well actually this hyper specialization problem it doesn't necessarily threaten intellectual autonomy but it forces us to recognize different kinds of intellectual autonomy and you yeah. talk about the familiar sort of self-reliant autonomy and then delegational autonomy right. and uh, management autonomy as well right. so could you just kind of briefly right. summarize what you have in mind there yeah. So, I mean, this is basically – so this comes about because I think like a lot of the pe reasons that people underestimate um, – that people underestimate our vulnerability to echo chambers is because they still have this fantasy that we can be fully intellectually autonomous and understand things. So um, so I got interested in this because I was convinced by Elijah Milgram that um, traditional individual total intellectual autonomy was a no-go. Um, but I also, I mean, he makes some claim. He's like, okay, this just means intellectual autonomy is impossible. We should give up on it. And I was like, I don't think that's quite right. So I tried to work out in this paper, um, what kinds of intellectual autonomy might be possible inside a hyper-specialized realm. And I ended up thinking like, look, okay, actually there are a few different kinds of intellectual autonomy. One kind is direct intellectual autonomy where you look at all the innards of something, you understand it, right? And another kind is um, indirect intellectual autonomy, where you're trying to figure out who to trust, right? And you might think that you're autonomous, that you can have indirect, there's still a way not to be autonomous, and there's still a way to be autonomous, right? The way to not be autonomous is just to, like, trust whoever you're told to trust, right? And the way to be indirectly autonomous is to carefully manage your trust and investigate whether you've trusted in the right way. Um, right. Uh, there's a, so there's a question back there about how well we can effectively we do this, but there's definitely a difference between just trusting and being careful with your trust. Mm -hmm. And then management autonomy is a really odd idea that I've just started playing with. And I think that's the idea that, so sometimes this is a kind of autonomy we can get not when we understand the innards of each system, but when we step back and look at the whole system. But to step back and look at the whole system, to get into view, you often have to ignore the innards of each system and kind of modularize and abstract particular systems. 
So, um, one, so I got to this thinking a lot about computer programming and what it's like to try to manage an entire large computer program. Um, right. And one thing you can think is, um, so when it, you, if you've done any programming, you know that like typically you want to program little like functional black boxes uh, that just take an input and remove do an output and then like just act as sealed. And the reason you want to treat them as sealed is because uh, they need to be worked on by different people. So um, old lessons from computer programming. A lot of the times you'll have this thing over here that does something about the screen and this thing over here that's doing some mathematical calculation and you think oh it's so much more efficient if these different modules could like reach into each other's innards and ask for really particular changes right. but you quickly discover that if you let that happen in an institutional setting things just turn to chaos because what's actually happening is different teams are managing different modules and changing them all the time and making them work in different ways all the time and right. so what you actually want to do is make each module a black box and take a strict input and put out a strict output. And then it, the modules should only look at each other's inputs and outputs and ignore um, and ignore and not try to mess with the particularities of each other's innards. So I was just thinking that, I mean, this is, this is kind of an odd point because this is me quibbling with like particular claims that Elijah Milgram makes in, um, the great endarkenment, but he had thought like the way to like the way out of the hyper specialization problem was to help autonomy by getting people to be able to look into the innards of other fields. And right. I thought, no, no, actually greater transparency the, in other words, right? Yeah. Greater transparency. In fact, what you want is to maybe admit that we can't understand all the other fields and make them more modular. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and decrease transparency. Actually, it's interesting you say the word transparency because um, I hadn't made this connection, but one of the things I'm working on right now is a paper called Against Transparency. And it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a development of, let me see what you think about this argument. This is totally new. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're one of the first people to hear about this. But, I'm excited. Um, it's based on this expert finding problem. So I got into Against Transparency. So this is, okay little backstory. So the other part of me has been working on games, and I got really interested in gamification. Um, and in particular about how disastrous a lot of gamification and metricization regimes seem to look like. So if you're in academia, you discover things like, so in my university, for example, uh, what transparency looks like is all of us have to show, every department has to show how its budgetary expenditures increase student success but student success has to have a clear and transparent definition. So the only one they can use is student success is defined as graduation rate. And that's it. Period. Right? Not quality of education, not just what's the graduation rate. Um, actually, technically, it's a there are two factors, graduation rate and graduation speed. That's all they care about. Right. There are other things about how um, about what happens when governments get very obsessed with a cost benefit analysis as the one way to analyze um, the success of projects, like profit do they get from investment? Um, so here's an argument from against transparency. So what we want from transparency is to make the inner workings of some institution judgeable to the outside. Right. right? Yeah. 
So Anara O'Neill in her uh, BBC lectures on trust has this one line where she says, look, people think transparency helps trust, but transparency actually undercuts trust because when people know they're constantly being monitored, they're actually just going to not give their real reasons and give fake reasons. And I think the real reason under this is a non-expert expert problem. So in this paper, I'm trying to articulate the problem. So here's the worry. If you have experts and they have to justify their actions to non-experts, mm-hmm. the problem is expert reasoning is expert. A lot of the reasons that experts have for doing what they do are reasons that are not available to the inexpert. So in, tra- in situations of transparency, you are trying to make expert you're trying to give non-experts the ability to judge the efficacy of expert action by making the experts' reasons available. But I don't think that's actually possible, right? Because so they're not experts. Because they're not experts, understand right? Yeah. So what you get are metrics that are comprehensible to the inexpert, yeah. but they're not actually accurate metrics. Student success is graduation rate or... Uh, so one of the interesting things, I've been reading a history about metrics in um, arts funding, and one of the things you find is that um, when you get like state oversight uh, and transparency of arts funding, the state oversight often uses metrics like, oh, um, if the NEA funded a museum show, what were the ticket sales? If there were a lot of ticket sales, then it was a good funding choice. But if ticket sales were poor, then it was a bad funding choice, right? So there's there's a measure that's available to the inexpert, but it's not actually the thing that an art expert would use as the measure, right? So the Does idea- Does this make any sense at all? Yeah, I think so. The experts there, they, is the idea that they know that the inexpert's not going to be able to under not going to be able to understand their expert reasoning, so they're actually going to kind of dumb it down in a way right. or something like that to make so, the expert understand, and it actually will make it so like they're not as trustworthy. Uh, so there are two levels. So the argument you gave is exactly O'Neill O'Neill's argument. She thought that transparency would make experts lie. Mm. I I worry about something worse. So my worry is that experts often believe in transparency. And start being motivated by exactly this, right? So a lot of professors do come around and say, like, well, if this is the definition of student success, this is what should be motivated for. So if you if there's an expert who's sincerely inside a system that demands transparency, then they will only permit themselves to act from reasons that are available to inexperts, which means they will undo their expertise. So the worry is that transparency actually will destroy expertise. Oh, okay. How um, is this? Uh, okay. Another thing I wanted to bring up is uh, the problem of cross-disciplinary defeater management, which you talk about <laughs> in your paper on intellectual autonomy. Right. And I'm wondering, how, so th- that's a different problem than the one you're talking this about. Is a, it's a very close problem. I mean, the, th- this is a problem about management. Um, this is a problem about management across expert domains. Right. Mm -hmm. This is exactly the problem. So the problem is exactly that. I mean, the problem of of cross domain defeater management. This is um, this is an idea from Elijah Milgram is that. So if. uh, So if I'm an engineer uh, and I'm trying to apply some work from a theoretical physicist, I'm typically not I don't understand all of the work. I'm applying a little portable package. Right. And that little portable package 
has defeater conditions. There are situations in which it won't work properly. But I don't know those defeater conditions because I'm not an expert. I'm just using a package that's been made from experts, right? So, <clears throat> so the problem is when one – so this is, this is all from Elijah Milgram, right? So mm -hmm. one expert domain uses the output of another expert domain. Mm -hmm. um, it need it won't be the the first expert domain won't be able to manage all the problems um, that show up. Uh, it won't be able to tell when the package they've received from the second expert domain shouldn't be trusted because they won't know the proper defeater conditions for it. Right. And and is the idea that well making the fields more transparent could actually give someone a false sense of confidence because yeah. then they can feel like they understand this argument from a different cognitive domain without realizing that there are so many defeater conditions that they're completely oblivious to. Right. So it can lead to this sense of false confidence. So therefore, in response to this problem, we shouldn't go the transparency route. We should go the more greater compartmentalization route, right? Um, yeah, with like, but the problem is if it's fully compartmentalized. So transparency is made to monitor corruption. And if you're too compartmentalized, then capacities for corruption. I mean, now we're back at the uh, true lover or fake guru problem, right? If it's too compartmentalized, fake gurus can and fake disciplines can run away and and flourish. If things are, if we demand transparency, then, um, actually, let me go back and talk about something because the way you put things was really nice. So there's a sense of, there's a good connection here between, I hadn't made this connection yet before a conversation, but there's a good connection here between the worries about transparency and the worries about defeater management. Um, and a good way to see them is uh, in this one amazing example of the problem of metrics and transparency. So there's a really depressing book that you should read, that everyone in higher education should read, called Engines of Anxiety by Wendy Espland and Michael Souter. They're sociologists, and it's a discussion of what the U.S. News and World Report's law school rankings mm -hmm. did to legal education and legal culture. So they monitored it for like, they interviewed tons of people. It's this book length sociological anthropological study. And the view is basically like it destroys law school culture. And what happens is these rankings create this apparently authoritative ranking, right? right. And people are like, oh, well, it's a good ranking. It's very clear. Here it is. Um, and uh, it was achieved through transparency because U.S. News and World Report has demanded, like, that schools report certain numbers, right? And so here it is. It's great. Um, as it turns out, there are, like, a thousand defeater conditions that no one understands that are going on all the time. So a lot of the ranking numbers just don't work at all because they, they're being gamed. So, for example, uh, a major source of the ranking is people's employment rates at nine months, right? So mm – -hmm. And then now law schools are giving that. A lot of law schools, um, a lot of law schools are encouraging students to take any job, even a non-law job, for the ninth month, just to rise up in the rankings. Right. Oh, I see. Um, there are other ones. So uh, schools go up in the rankings if the rejection rate is higher. And so now, and this is terrible. Admissions officers are being instructed to encourage people who won't get in to apply specifically to boost their rejection ranking. Right? <laughs> I see. So, so it's just deranging the whole educational system, people believing that this ranking is authoritative without realizing all these defeater right. conditions. Right. So the, I mean, 
So the sorry. So the so there are a lot of problems with transparency. I think there's a different one from the one I was talking about before, the undermining expertise. This is there's a false confidence problem because of the lack of understanding the defeating conditions. And there's a different problem that can happen um, when people take on board as genuine the the transparency conditions. Anyway, so yeah, that's that's where all the stuff goes. So uh, I guess that one uh, maybe potential pushback that I have is when you're talking about management autonomy or delegational autonomy, why call them autonomy? Like so, like right. delegate, like my, my, I don't, I just, I guess I have a hard time shaking myself out of the intuition right. that autonomy should just be self-direction or self-reliance, right. right? So if delegational autonomy is kind of delegating responsibility to right. some logical alien right, right. that is, uh, you know, thinks differently than you, has different expertise right. than you, why not just call that responsible cognitive offloading or or, or to take sure. management autonomy? Can we can we define that in maybe not in terms of autonomy, but some other epistemic virtues like? Sure. I mean, I mean, you could not use the word if you wanted to say that autonomy had to be entirely individual, then uh, and not dependent on other people, then we could find some other terms for it. The reason that I still think in terms of autonomy is because I think in terms of these are cases in which you have individual intellectual participation. The idea is the, the reason I call them all autonomy is, look, you can be you can as an individual be an active, thoughtful participant and decide what you should do. But you can do it in a number of different ways. You can master a domain for yourself, or you can spend all your time deciding who to trust, or you can spend all your time trying to get a big picture view by modularizing the small stuff. So it's autonomy because, so the idea is something like, look, Mm. we're limited beings, and we can intellectually participate and think for ourselves, but we can't do it all, so we have to choose where our focus is. Our focus can be fine-grained, or our focus can be on other people, or our focus can be up at a really abstract level, trying to push things around, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, here's one way to put it. Um, okay, one kind of intellectual autonomy would be to totally master um, the sociology, Sorry, to totally master everything about the psychology of addiction and know everything about that field, right? Right. Another thing could be like, so I, on the other hand, so I'm doing this work right now that involves connecting up the sociology of quantification, the psychology of addiction, the history of quantification, and then like various worries from algorithmic AI. I actually can't understand all those fields for myself. So I have to trust kind of results from different people, then step back and take a higher level view about how these packages can connect up to each other. So the idea is I'm doing some thinking on my own, but involves trusting a ton of other people Mm -hmm. and uptaking their packages or you could like drill down and be at like a super fine grained level right so yeah. the, the idea is you just you can be autonomous at different scales of of fine gradedness or large gradedness yeah i see what you're saying like there still is some self-direction going right. on you're still doing you're just you're not doing all the cognitive later right. labor on your right. own you're right. delegating it but you're not right. blindly following people as well there's still some right yeah right Right. So, yeah, that's exactly right. I think there is, there might be a virtue in which you don't think for yourself. I think that's possible, but I think these are all, ver- the idea is if you think it's important to think for yourself, there are still different forms of thinking for yourself 
the some of them are very socially embedded and we have to we have to put those in the system right okay so can we end by talking about the kind of shifting gears and talking about your co-authored paper moral outreach porn oh yes it's a really light awesome. <laughs> it's uh yeah so okay this, this, so, is part, this is not shifting gears this is part of the same project okay okay yeah yeah well yeah it is, i guess it is related in a lot of ways um so for okay, so I we'll start with just the conceptual analysis of the term porn yeah. in the generic sense, right? Like you know, yes, there's the familiar kind of sexual pornography, but then people talk about food porn, looking at all these delicious meals on Instagram, right? There's real estate porn, and there's what you call moral outrage porn. But before we get to the moral outrage part, just what is your conceptual analysis of just the term porn in a generic okay. sense? So I I should admit that this paper, which I love started between Becca Williams and me as a drunk late night Facebook thread. Oh, and that makes we, thought it was just, we thought it was just funny. And at some point we were like, holy shit, we should just write this up because this is actually true. So <laughs> the basic idea is, um, I love, I also, by the way, I should just say, I love co-authoring and I yeah. love, I've done a few of these and the best ones are the ones like this one that start from a conversation where you can't actually figure out whose ideas are whose. All you know is you talked and you ended up with this thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there's this new use of the term porn, food porn, real estate porn, organization porn, closet porn, poverty porn, ruin porn. Um, and it seems really clear. And it also seems like stable enough that if someone introduces a new version of it, everyone knows what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. So one version uh, while we were writing this paper um, Becca was watching Saturday Night Live and she texts me and she's like, holy shit, someone was just like on Saturday Night Live, like, stop with all this impeachment porn. And we're like, yeah. Then <laughs> someone like sent me a link to, um, <clears throat> I don't remember her name, but um, a disabled comedian's TED talk called I'm Not Your Disability uh, Sorry, uh, My Disability Is Not Your Motivation Porn. And it's just like, yeah, wait, I, know, I know what you're talking about. So the concept's stable, and I think we're using it because it's useful. And we're like, so what's the definition? So um, Beck actually showed me this incredible paper from Michael Ray. And Michael Ray was working just on the notion of sexual pornography, right? And uh, Michael Ray's account, the simple version of it is that sexual pornography is images of sex looked at for immediate gratification while avoiding intimacy, personal connection, and the development of some kind of romantic relationship. And we were like, that generalizes. So our definition of X-porn is something is X-porn if it's representations of X used for immediate gratification while avoiding the cost and consequences of actually entangling with, uh, actually um, dealing with X itself. So food porn is pictures, but you don't have to have the calories, repair it, or you know actually go out of the house. Uh, and that means that there's, we're like, okay, if this is right, then we should be able to find new versions of porn. Uh, and here's one, moral outrage porn. Moral outrage porn is representations of moral outraging situations engaged in for gratification, pleasure, without the actual costs and consequences of actually dealing with moral outrage itself. So, so, and I think it's really important. Every time I've given this talk, someone always like takes our view to be like Jonathan Haidt, kind of like, there's too much moral outrage, we should be more civil, and I don't think that at all, right? I think what we're actually saying is moral outrage is important, it's crucial, 
which is exactly why moral outrage porn is problematic. It undermines the importance of genuine moral outrage. Because like then everyone or, will just be tempted to write off genuine moral outrage, which has a, a good purpose as, oh, well, that's just another example of moral outrage porn. And yeah, you're very clear that you're not condemning moral outrage per se in the paper. And I don't think that's the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is actually that moral outrage porn like offers you the temptation to pervert moral outrage. And I mean something like actual moral outrage wants to lead to true moral action, which means – a, it needs to lead to action, and B, more importantly, you want to get the morality right, right? You want to, you want your morality to be nuanced. You want your morality to be careful. You, you want your moral outrage to be genuinely onto the morally true or good or whatever. If you're a moral outrage porn user, you have don't have any of that, right? You're, you're interested in doing what you're, inter, you're interested in using moral interactions with moral outrage for pleasure, which means you have reasons to change your moral outlook to increase your pleasure. So the real worry is that there's an incentive to simplify your morality or change it. In what, I mean, I think it will be a simplification, but change it in whatever direction um, gives you more pleasure. And I think what that looks like is you hyper simplify your morality, make it easy to right. trigger, make it very confident, strip the nuance out of it so you don't have to worry about it. So you can just yeah. get the pleasure of so being like smug and right. Yeah, there's a there's a paper by the psychologist David Pizarro, who's been on this podcast, called Superhero Comics as Moral Pornography. And he argues that uh, superhero comics are a kind of moral pornography in the sense that you're talking about, in that it simplifies morality and it gives us it allows us to kind of enjoy the consequences without engaging with the real moral nuances of the world. And furthermore, it leads us to have unreal unrealistic expectations of how morality actually works in the world like there are clear villains there are clear good guys yep. just as sexual pornography leads us to have unrealistic yep. sexual expectations that is exactly right i should i didn't know about that paper i should look at that paper but right. i i think it's, it's and we should expect so moral outrage porn is one version but you should expect tons of versions of this uh and so i was on the escape the void podcast and he was the uh, and he was like, so is there going to be like civility porn too? And I was like, yeah, there's going to be people like who have these hyper oversimplified like, oh, no one should be morally outraged. We're the real adults. We're the only civil people around. And that too. <laughs> yeah, civility porn or sobriety porn, whatever you want to call it, right? Yeah. Um, so I, I'll let, I, what are some tangible examples, other tangible examples of moral outrage? Like you say, I feel like so much of what's happening on social media and yeah. Twitter is moral outrage porn. Some of it's probably done you in moral outrage. Yeah. But um, yeah, would you agree with yes. that? Yes. Um, but I also think, so the new stuff I'm doing right now um, is trying to link that with the echo chamber stuff. And I think you often see it linked with echo chambers. I mean, yeah. go on Breitbart. And I think the reason, um, I should say, the proviso I always th say here is, I also think there are echo chambers and stuff like this on the left, but I also don't think that both sides are equally bad. Whatever, we should end a footnote. So, right. um, um, so I think the reason you see it so often, and here's, here's a new thought that I'm trying to work on, mm -hmm. is that echo chambers and moral outrage porn are both versions of what you might call instrumentalizing morality. Right, They're yeah, I want to get there. changing moral beliefs in order to get some purpose. So echo chambers are pushing around, typically pushing around moral beliefs to get the echo chamber to survive. And moral outrage porn is a process 
whereby you're encouraged to change your moral beliefs for pleasure. So I end up thinking like, if you're already designing an echo chamber and you're willing to instrumentalize moral beliefs, right, then a very good tool for you is moral outrage porn or any of the associated moral pornographies, right? Because it is, because if you can make your belief system both sticky in the exclusive in the echo chamber sense and pleasurable in the moral outrage sense, then it's going to be really sticky. So if you're the way I've been thinking about it lately is if you're a completely bad faith manipulator, that's out to, that's willing to use to change moral beliefs around to get, create a system that like will be sticky for people to get them to believe what you want. Right. Two tools for your echo chambers and moral outrage porn. Right. And you, so th that's what you ultimately argue in the paper, right? Porn is bad because, or when it's bad, it's bad because it instrumentalizes things which ought not be instrumentalized. Yeah. Are you assuming a kind of Kantian ethical framework there? Or and, no, any, more, any, any moral realist framework will work there, I think, right? Like, okay. um, any, as long as you think that your moral beliefs should align to some moral, some there's some way in which some moral beliefs are true and some moral beliefs are not true, um, then pushing around your moral beliefs for pleasure without trying to make them true is just going to be a form of epistemic bad faith. And what is, so what is the kind of pleasure that we're talking about here? Like moral feelings and moral superiority? Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's, so kind yeah, of kind of I think there's a wide variety, but the typical ones I see in the wild are smugness, feelings of confidence. Also, in some cases, I think feelings of belonging to a community, feelings of superiority, feelings of being like in the right or one of the special few that's in the right in some cases, uh, feelings of certainty. All these have their pleasures. Right. And you, another thing that you say is moral outrage porn is potentially more dangerous actually than other kinds of form because it's not mechanistic, it's cognitive, and it actually right. involves like your beliefs and changing right. your beliefs. Can you just say a little more about that? Yeah. So there's some kinds of porn that I don't think um, – so our definition is that mechanistic porn is porn where the representation just gives you pleasure without needing any beliefs, and cognitive porn is porn that needs beliefs to get you the pleasure, right? So I think food porn – is mechanistic porn probably like cute pictures of puppies are also you know <laughs> like you just look at it and you're like just stimulated you don't have to have any beliefs at all right it's not shifting my worldview in yeah series. moral outrage porn i think in order to have the beliefs you have to believe in the associated morality right you have to be like oh we're so right the other side is so wrong uh, so that's the dangerous stuff because the mechanistic porn, you're not tempted to change your beliefs to opt. Like, I don't need to change any beliefs to have pleasures from like looking at pictures of nachos, right? They just, mm. but in order to, uh, but since moral outrage porn, since those pleasures go through belief, then, then you get the temptation to yeah. optimize your beliefs for pleasure. Is there kind of like bootstrap corroboration going on there as well? Like you yeah. feel more right, which leads you to believe more right, which leads yeah. you to feel more right. And it's just kind I, of this yeah. like feedback loop. Yeah. I think these are like various forms of hedonic feedback loops that like yeah. apply pressure to your moral beliefs to push them around. Right. All right. Well, that that's uh, those are all the questions I had. Um, awesome, I appreciate the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, like I said, I've, greatly valued your work and i'm excited to see uh how your thinking evolves moving forward thanks man thanks so much for letting me be on the podcast it was a good time